At one o'clock in the morning, Carl, the night porter, turned down the last of three table lamps in the main lobby of the Windermere Hotel. The blue carpet darkened a shade or two, and the walls drew back into remoteness. The chairs filled with shadowy loungers. In the corners were memories like cobwebs. Tony Resick yawned. He put his head on one side and listened to the frail, twittery music from the radio room beyond a dim arch at the far side of the lobby. He frowned. That should be his radio room after 1 a.m. Nobody should be in it. That red-haired girl was spoiling his nights. The frown passed and a miniature of a smile quirked at the corner of his lips. He sat relaxed, a short, pale, paunchy, middle-aged man with long, delicate fingers clasped on the elk's tooth of his watch chain. The long, delicate fingers of the sleight-of-hand artist. Fingers with shiny, molded nails and tapering first joints. Fingers a little spatulate at the ends. Handsome fingers. Tony Rezik rubbed them gently together, and there was peace in his quiet, sea-gray eyes. The frown came back on his face. The music annoyed him. He got up with a curious litheness, all in one piece, without moving his clasped hands from the watch chain. At one moment, he was leaning back relaxed, and the next, he was standing balanced on his feet, perfectly still, so that the movement of rising seemed to be a thing imperfectly perceived, an error of vision. You've got a little time. We've got a little podcast. It's Short Story Short Podcast. I'm Chris, here today with... Christy Baxter. And Christy, I understand that the world today needs a good short story. Which one are we going to give them? We are going to give the world I'll Be Waiting by Raymond Chandler, which actually Raymond Chandler gave the world, but we're going to also give it to them. Well, he gave it to us in 1939, so it's fine. We can, I'm pretty sure he's dead. Uh, (laughs) um, This is a story that it typifies Chandler in such a way. Um, if you've never read Raymond Chandler before, start here. I mean, there's so much of it out there that you can find that's amazing. But uh, the Simple Act of Murder collection is great. But this particular piece gets down what I think are the three most important things about Chandler is his ability to describe everything perfectly uh, and take just enough space with each one. He's definitely not a minimalist, but he is definitely not a maximalist. Uh, but at the same time, he never met a piece of dialogue he could not twist in such a way to make you completely understand the person who was saying it. Yeah, he definitely, he doesn't really need the the dialogue tags that he said, she said as much as so many, you know, many writers do. That's a hard thing to pull off to get that characterization so perfect in the actual dialogue that you automatically know who's talking just because of the the tone and the, the words that are delivered and the, the syntax and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. He really did inform what noir became in particularly not just in literature, but in film. And if you look at something like uh, Double Indemnity or to a lesser extent, The Maltese Falcon, you definitely see characters that talk like this. Uh, 
part of that had to do with a lot of Chandler stuff being used as basis for those films. But it's so, one of the lines that just kills me every time is, make me a story about it, I'm bored. Who talks like that? <laughs> I'll tell you, no one. And it's great. Uh, also, I may have subconsciously stolen a lot of the things. Like, I wasn't kidding you, Miss Cressy. I think Mozart was the greatest man that ever lived and Tuscany was his prophet. I don't know if I've ever heard a sentence that sounded more like it came from my mouth than that one. <laughs> that does have uh, the, the Chris Garcia ring to it, yes. <laughs> yeah. I, and I was just going to say, I just, I like how that flavors the interactions and he doesn't really need to give us a lot of backstory. He lets the dialogue do the work there. Yes, and he lets, his stories tend to do a lot of work overall. And I think that's one of the most interesting things is that his language becomes so much more impactful because of how much it is forced to do. And, you know, I know language in every story does what it does or it would be a play. Uh, but what he's actually doing is he is using very specific touchstone words very very pointedly uh to come across and what i love is how he establishes what a thing is and then does the recall uh the elk horn the elk's tooth uh keep calling back to that uh like those little touches are what make chandler just like so mind-bogglingly great for me <laughs> Yeah, um, another example I could point to uh, was one in in the intro. In the corners were memories like cobwebs. You don't know it then, but you're going to get sort of a, a, a dusty, cobwebby relationship uh, that hasn't been tended to and, and hasn't been, you know, cleaned up like it perhaps should and, you know, is not going to come to a happy end. Mm -hmm. uh, and But it, it's right from the beginning, and he does it also with the... Um, the long delicate fingers of a sleight of hand artist. Some nice foreshadowing there of the actual like sleight of hand that he does. That's not so much, you know, with his hands. <laughs> it's more mm. with his uh, actions and decisions. Yeah. And what I find great is that when you look at how mystery and particularly crime literature has evolved, Chandler with the possible exception of Mickey Spillane and Dashiell Hammett had greater impact than anyone I can think of. Uh, if you look at books like even The Godfather, you see this sort of, not necessarily the rhythm of it, but how you take those little elements, those even just tiny phrases and you plug them in and you use them as sort of signifiers for what's gonna happen at the end or at least further down the line. Uh, and he was building off of uh, works like uh, McTeague in particular is when it comes to mind, where this idea of the worlds in which criminals live are vibrant in their grit, I guess is the best way I could think of it. That's a really, really good way of putting it. Putting it. Yeah, there, and that is also how the story is. It's vibrant in its grit. You have really vibrant characters here in, in a seedy world, which is really the, the definition of noir. 
<laughs> in, in some ways, aside from the character's behavior as well. But but yeah, you, you definitely I, I like I, I think that that's a very evocative and uh, as you would put it, correct. Correct. Yes. <laughs> I'm correcting you for correcting me for correcting us. <laughs> <laughs> and what I love is there's something that I've always said about noir film that I never sort of realized came from noir literature, even though I've read tons of this stuff, uh, is this idea of contrasts often in the same space. And in noir, it shows as uh, the contrast between light and dark, uh, most notably in the lighting. But there's one phrase here, the tall, white-faced, somehow handsome, and somehow not handsome man back slow. Like, he's putting up, here this thing is, but it's also not this thing. And in a way, I think it feels like it's about obfuscation. It's about uh, taking a truth that has multiple facets to it. And how is that not the essence of Chandler and crime fiction in general? Yeah. And give me a second. My brain just went to other places and I need to catch up. <laughs> Such a day. Buffering. I am buffering. Yes. Such a day. And... <laughs> You see that idea of, you know, it seems like one thing, but it's actually another in the actual climax of the story. You know, when he mm -hmm. thinks, if I'm reading it right, that he's saving the girl, that he's saving Eve Cressy. And what he's really doing through his actions unknowingly is condemning his brother who, you know, came to him with a request about Eve Cressy and he was like, I'm going to go the other way. And that other way ended up uh, not great for him uh, as, a, as a brother. Yeah. And that, of course, points to a fact that is sadly true about so much noir and so much crime fiction in general is there is a slightly less than subtle misogyny to it all uh there there ain't no dame that is to be trusted is really what it comes down to uh that's why my favorite part of uh is it the maltese falcon or is it the big sleep where he goes into the bookstore and he flirts with the uh the bookstore owner it's the only female character i can think of who is actually bold-faced not a bad person in one of his books <laughs> even though i or one of the movies and i think that is a major trope within the mystery world and at the same time it also feels like that now has become so tied to this idea of criminality and i think really what writers like chandler were doing were defining what and how criminality would be viewed uh that we've you know we've kind of internalized today and it's funny because there is that that grittiness to it and yet somehow it's romanticized and and has contributed to the romanticiz romanticization i guess uh to maybe coin a word probably not uh of crime in general you know we see mob figures and such as these you know like big figures that are are, are doing you know in, insane things and really they're just they're just criminals <laughs> you know they're, they're just criminals they're people too but they they are you know breaking the law and they're they're definitely not heroes they're the villains but in this romanticization of crime we managed to almost uplift uplift them to sort of close to hero status 
And I think one of the things that I think as a true crime podcaster, you would you would probably agree with this is criminals in crime novels are far smarter than they are in real life. Oh, yes, I would fully agree with you. Ninety nine times out of 100. Yeah, they definitely are. Um probably because they have an author behind them and that's not to say that all authors are smarter than criminals but they just have more time to deliberate and they have the power of editing too <laughs> i bet a lot of criminals would like to go back and revise their actions oh yeah definitely and i think uh that shows here you have a criminal who i think 100 percent understands how to use their own actions for their own ends which is a hallmark of a cult leader not necessarily a petty crook <laughs> yeah true very true yeah but then again how many uh like say mob leaders are kind of close to cult leaders in a way you just blew my mind yay <laughs> <laughs> excellent well, yeah, this is a story that is so much atmosphere and so much detail, so much detail. Uh, you can you almost can cut the story in half by removing adjectives. Yeah. And you can almost feel the, the foggy night. You know, I don't even think he says it's a foggy night. I'm not sure. But I certainly felt like it had to be. You know, it had to be a foggy night when it had just rained and the pavement glimmered and the darkness under the streetlights. And I don't even know if that was in there, but it definitely was what was in my head. You, you, you should be a writer. Uh, I'll, I'll give it a stab. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Got any other thoughts on this one? I think I got all my thoughts out, actually. Booyakacha. Done. <laughs> Excellent. Hey, but Christy. Yes? What, what do you think we should read for next week? I think we should make this a theme. I think we should hit up another Raymond. So how about Raymond Carver's What We Talk About When We Talk About Love? Ooh, goody. A nice Raymonding. <laughs> yes, we're going to give our listeners a nice Raymonding. <laughs> <laughs> Well, excellent. Well, this has been Short Story. Short Podcast. <laughs>